the most beautiful thing in the world that you and I look for is love. Free love is a black and white contradiction in two words. Love was never intended to be free. You cannot really define love until you understand the one who has created you and me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You cannot love without giving. Hi, everyone. My name is Buzz, and I'm one of the pastors here at Three Crosses Church. And I'm so privileged to share the teaching time today with Pastor Butch as we explore this last movement in our Known By series. This series has been all about exploring Jesus' teaching in John 13 that we, as his followers, should be known by our love for one another. And in this season, where it feels like it's so easy to be known by what we're against, it has been so transformative and life-giving to me to look at what we are for. And we should be for showing the love of Christ. And so on week one, we looked at our brokenness and the good news of the gospel. Because before we can be known by our love, we have to realize that we can't just look within ourselves to try to work harder and do better. We need to be transformed by the truth of the gospel, that we are made in his image. And part of what that means is that we should look like he looks. And so we'll explore this theme a bit more today as we look at Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, something I'm looking very much forward to. And so then last week, we looked at the limits on our love. We've all heard the command to love your neighbor as yourself, but sometimes we try to limit who that is. And so we might try to find a way to overlook someone in need, perhaps by only loving our friends or only loving those who haven't yet hurt us, or perhaps by not showing love across racial divides. Any limitation on who our neighbor is falls short of Christ's call to be known by our radical love for one another. And so now here in week three, we're gonna see Christ pushing us even farther to something we don't see that often in the Christian church or modeled in the world around us. And at first read, it might seem that Jesus is giving us just more rules and more laws to keep beyond even what we might be able to bear. And so how can we live up to this transformative call from Jesus? You know, in Luke chapter six, verse 46, Jesus asked his disciples why they call him Lord, but don't do what he says. This is a great question, because if he really is Lord of our life, we have to follow his teaching no matter how hard, how cross-cultural, or how costly. But part of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus will help us and empower us to follow his teachings. And if we're going to follow this teaching today, we're going to need some help from him. And so let's turn to that key text, which is Matthew chapter 5. We'll read verses 43 to 48. And it says this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so ends our reading, but not our understanding of God's word. And so may the Lord illuminate his truths to us as we continue to digest what it might mean to be known by our love for our enemies. And so one of the first things I see in this passage is that Jesus calls us to love beyond what is normal. And as he says here in verse 44, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you might be children of the Father in heaven. And you know, it's, it's hard to continue to hate somebody that you pray for. 
This is because prayer is more than just asking God for things. It's a time where we sit with the Lord and listen to Him. A time where we can sit with Jesus and be formed by Him. And if we spend some of that formational time on behalf of our enemies, it's hard to keep on having an attitude towards them that doesn't honor Christ. You will find yourself shifting towards attitudes which do honor Christ. Because at its root, that's what enemy love is all about. It's honoring Jesus Christ and being an ambassador for who He is and how He loves. And this is in part what Jesus means when He says here that if we love like this, we'll be children of God. He's not saying that we earn the right if we can just conjure up enough emotion towards people. He's saying that we are a reflection of the truth of God's love towards all people, an ambassador whom our world can see that reflects the one whom they can't see. And I do want to caution us a bit here too, though, that love for our enemies doesn't mean that we one day will just pretend that the things these people have done haven't hurt us. It doesn't mean that you have to soft sell your own pain, and it doesn't even necessarily remove consequences for somebody's actions. What it can do is remove the bitterness and unforgiveness in our own hearts that can strangle and poison us. Love for our enemies can get us out of that bitter posture and into a posture more like God has towards us. And the second thing I see here in this passage is that loving our enemies is something that we don't very often find in our world today. You know, in verse 45, Jesus describes what the love of the Father is like. He says that He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sending rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Love that's more common in our world would maybe say something like, we'll give good gifts to those in favor or those who are like us, and we'll withhold from those who are out of favor or those who aren't like us. Sometimes we even cloak this type of love and favoritism with positive language. We say things like loyalty or fairness and put that right at the top of our list of virtues. But the love of God isn't always like the love we find naturally in this world. And in thinking about how this love is different, I'm reminded of a situation one of my sons encountered in the kids' ministry here at Three Crosses. He came home and he wanted to know, just exactly, how could I earn more adventure bucks? We called them adventure bucks back then, and it's kind of a reward they give out in Three Crosses Kids. And, and no matter what I do, he said, some Sundays we just get the same amount as everybody else. It doesn't matter if we read the verse, or if we brought our Bible, or if we listened, or if we behaved. Some Sundays our teacher just gives us all the same reward. For my son, it made much more sense that those who behaved and did the right things would get the reward, and that those who didn't wouldn't get the reward. Maybe that makes sense to you too, because that's how most of the world works. So I went to the teacher and I asked about his own adventure buck policy. And the teacher told me he was just trying to live out the truth of the gospel, that it rains on the just and the unjust. He didn't want the kids to learn that God only loves you when you do what is right. Often he gives you more love and more reward than you deserve, even when it's not fair. And he actually used this verse, he quoted at me. Now, at first when my son had told me about this, I thought something seemed off, but when I thought further about it, I realized I don't really want a world where we get what we deserve. I don't really want a world driven by so-called fairness and harshness when we fall short. I surely would want someone to show love to me in a season where I needed it. So how can we hold that same need against others? If we're going to be emulating Jesus and be known by our love, we have to give love away like He does, even when it's not fair. And then the third thing I want to explore here in this passage is, what if we have been an enemy to someone else? And in verse 46, it tells us that if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? You know, I see here in these verses that sometimes our normal and natural way of life is simply to exclude some from God's love. And if we simply reciprocate the love that others show us, that's not redeemed, transforms love. 
If we simply show love to our own people, that's not love like Christ has. It takes that gospel-transformed love to go above and beyond with the love we have for others, and it takes that redeemed, Christ-like love to show love beyond our own limitations. And Jesus is so wise because he shows us here a few of our most closely held limits, friends and occupations and even race. If we love only our friends, or if we avoid people of other economic status, or if we don't build bridges to truly show love to those of other racial and national origins, we're not showing the love of Christ. That favoritism is a sin. That racism is a sin. But transformed love is the way of Jesus. This transformed love can seem like a high bar, though, can't it? You know, Jesus even reminds us here in verse 48 that we need to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. How can we do that? I think so often we're much better at pointing out for others when they aren't perfect than we are at admitting to ourselves that we sometimes fall short and that we haven't been perfect. We know these rules about forgiveness and grace and we wanna make sure others apply them to us. And I remember one time one of my sons, who shall remain nameless, was going around hitting his brothers, running away and yelling, the Bible says you can't hit back. <laughs> well, it sort of does. <laughs> but he should have been focused on the truth that he shouldn't have hit his brothers in the first place. He needed to be the one who did what was right because it looked like Jesus, rather than waiting someone else to do the same for him. He needed to show love as the first step, not forcing someone else to have to forgive him. You know, in another passage, Jesus accuses the teachers of the law as being like people who tie a heavy burden upon people, but they're not willing to lift even a finger, it says, to help them carry that burden. Let's not make this love of enemy like that, a burden we expect others to bear on our behalf. Let's be those that lift the burden for everyone. Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus does more than just command us to do something. He did it first and he empowers us to follow him in doing the same. I think the most profound expression of love for enemies is found in Luke chapter 23, as Luke records Jesus' crucifixion and his time on the cross. And as we continue in our service, we're gonna to look towards celebrating a time of worship together. And I'd love as we do to keep this passage close in our hearts. I'm gonna read verses 32 through 34. It describes what Jesus went through on the cross. And it says that two other men both criminals were also led out with Jesus to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Even when Jesus had done nothing wrong, he showed us love. He even wanted to forgive the ones who had killed him, who had caused him such excruciating pain, who had forced him into a punishment that he didn't deserve. If Jesus could love those enemies, and if we're going to call him Lord, we have to do the same. As it says in the book of Romans, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. So how can we go and do the same? I know here as we're going to head into a time of worship, we're going to sing two songs which express the truth that Jesus has exchanged his goodness for our sin. He gives us grace for our hate. He gives us passion for our apathy, and he gives us love for our indifference. And so as we sing these songs together, I want us to keep that truth in our heart that we love our enemies because he first loved us. 
us. After our time of worship, Pastor Butch is going to come and give us some practical tools about how we can express this love of neighbor to the world around us. And so let's go to the Lord in worship.
Our series title these last three weeks is Known By. In other words, what is it that you would like to be known by? I remember uh, chapel many years ago when I was a school teacher. Uh, we always started chapel with the, the song, uh, they will know we are Christians by our love. Well, Jesus certainly practiced that, and he's our first example. We're going to give two examples today, and then we're going to wrap it up with a look at uh, Psalm 55. Here's what it says in John 13 at the beginning. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Don't you love that? He loved them right to the end. And now he was going to show an act of love. It says the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon, Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist after that, he poured water into the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, now here's the key. He began to wash his disciples' feet as an act of love. You got it. That's right. And included in that act of love was the very one who would betray him, Judas, that is, Jesus didn't say, I, I'm just going to show love to those who are cooperative, those who follow me, those who will be used by me later. No, he was going to show his love even toward Judas, his enemy. This week's uh, theme that Buzz has given me is to love our enemies. Well, Jesus was the absolute perfect example of that. Uh, it says in Matthew 5, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of our heavenly father. And so Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Um, and then he uses that time of washing to be an example for his disciples to follow. He says, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Then he says this, now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And see, the point is not just the washing, but the willingness to wash the feet, to serve the one who would be his enemy. Ooh, let me say that again. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is that Jesus says, don't just love others, love those and serve those who irritate you, who are your 
enemies, so to speak, who are even against you, who impede your progress. Love them as well. And he is saying, follow my example. That is what I have done. Now, let me give you the second example. David. David um, certainly was a father of a, uh, a blended, dysfunctional family. Well, we know that Amnon raped Tamar, and as a result, Ab uh, Amnon was killed by Absalom. So Absalom flees, gets out of there. He's gone for three years. Finally, he comes back to Jerusalem where David is on the throne. It takes a long time, but finally um, he comes back and comes to David. It's almost as if Absalom wants to reconcile with his father. But there, there are thoughts in his mind of how he can take over the throne. We find that Absalom comes to his father and makes up little, little plots, little excuses. He says, for example, I, I want to go to Hebron. I need to go there because I need to continue some worship that I started there, and I need to be thankful. He says, can I have permission to go? And of course, David says, yes, go. But instead of that, he goes down to the city gate first, as if he were just there to greet people. And the, the, all the, the members of the kingdom are coming in there through the gate in Jerusalem. And he stops them and he says, oh, oh, it's so good to see you. And he glad hands them. He even shakes with them, hands with them and he hugs them. And, and he acts like he's so glad to see them. And, and he says, oh, my father is too busy. But if I, if I were, were able to serve you, I would take care of you and I would certainly give a judgment in your favor. And so he recruits many, many followers to himself. And in fact, it says he stole the hearts of the people. Because, see, Absalom had an idea to take over the throne and take over all the authority. That's what he wanted. He next goes to Hebron where he uh, um, recruits an army. And then he, the, the plot gets even thicker because he, he knows he needs an advisor. Mm, who could I get, he says. He goes to uh, Ahithophel, the very one who was the advisor to his father. Ahithophel becomes the advisor to Absalom. And the plot continues, it gets even worse because Ahithophel gives Absalom an idea of how he can make the life of David even worse and how he can come to finally to the point of overthrowing his father. And what Ahithophel says this is this. He says, get all the concubines of your father, have them come to the middle of the city where everyone can can see what's going on, and absolutely humiliate your father by you having a relationship with his concubines. Wow! Unbelievable that Ahithophel would come up with that kind of a plot against the very one who he had been an advisor to, had been a close friend with, had even worshipped with, that is, David. Well... 
Finally, David has to, to leave Jerusalem. He's on his way out because Absalom and his army are coming after him. And Ahithophel is accompanying Absalom. They're on their way to overthrow David. And so David, in the process, writes this psalm, Psalm 55. And in the first few verses, he gives, um, gives us a little glimpse of how he feels. Uh, he is hurt. He is troubled. Um, but it just all comes out. And so I want to read those first few verses. Listen to my prayer, O God, David says. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. He says, my thoughts trouble me. And I am distraught because of what my enemy is saying, because of the threats of the wicked. And when he says his enemy, he's talking about Ahithophel and Absalom himself. For they bring down suffering on me and assail me in their anger. My heart, he says, my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen on me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror and has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had wing, the wings of a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter, far from the tempest storm. You know, like all of us, when he is attacked by someone, he says, ah, I would just like to leave. Get out of here. Hide. But he says, I can't do that. And then he asks the Lord to confuse his enemy, to confound his enemy. Down on, on verse 12 is David's absolute confession of his anguish and hurt. He says, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I, I could hide. But it is you, as if he were speaking to Ahithophel, he says, but it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend with whom I once enjoyed uh, sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive into the realm of the dead. And then he just calls out to God, cries out to God for God to take care of it. Now, here's what I want to show you. When an enemy attacks you, all the thoughts of revenge and anger and how we can get back and what we should do, all that just flood our minds. And all the sinful tendencies that we have are just unleashed. But he says an interesting thing, starting down here at, at uh, verse, uh, verse 16. Knowing all these things, but he, then he says, as for me, that is, even though others may do other things, they might want revenge, they might retaliate. As for me, when my enemy attacks, here's what I will do. I call to God and the Lord saves me. I, I call to God. In other words, I pray. When something goes against me, when the enemy attacks, when absolutely I am helpless, I don't know what to do. I call to God. Two verses later, he says this. Uh, evening and morning and noon, I cry out 
in distress. It, it, crying out is just like calling out, except that the crying out shows that emotion, that hurt, that desperation. And so what David says here is that when your enemy has an attack against you, when you are in absolute distress, the first thing you do is call out to God. That is, you pray. The second thing is that you cry out before him. Let him know your hurt, your anguish, your confusion. Let him know. Cry out before him. Don't go after him. Don't plot against him. Just cry out before the Lord. And then finally, we have call, we have cry, and then we look at verse 22 that says this, Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will Never let the righteous be shaken. Don't you love that? Let me read it again. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Throw it all on him. Just give it all to him. See, that's what you just think of the fishermen casting that net out into the sea so they could catch fish. You just Cast it out there. Just throw it out there. Say, Lord, I'm giving it all to you. I'm heaping it on you because I don't know what to do. I'm calling out to you. I'm crying out to you. And now I'm going to cast it on you. Well, folks, that's how we are to love our enemy. Not by plotting against him. Not by coming up with our own little scheme. And certainly David was hurt. But by calling crying and casting out. But now, let me just give you, as we wrap things up, a few key points, things to remember about our own attitude. Here we go. Number one is this. Meekly admit your hurt and your weakness. When you go to the Lord, you just say, Lord, I'm absolutely hurt. I can't handle this. I have an enemy, an enemy who was, was once a friend that I was close to. So you, you give it to him. You meekly admit your hurt and your weakness. Secondly, you humbly call on the Lord in the midst of your anguish and your anger. Thirdly, you fully surrender retaliation to the Lord. You don't go after him. You don't plot against him. You don't say something you shouldn't say. You just fully surrender that to the Lord. And then, fourthly, expectantly, remember that God will provide deliverance and the ability to, to be sustained during criticism, hurt, and disloyalty. That is, you expect God to give you what it takes. Now, let, let me just say that one again, okay? expectantly remember that God will provide deliverance. Uh, there will be anguish, there will be hurt, there will be this feeling of being rejected, but God will provide deliverance. And the ability to be sustained, to hang in there during times of criticism, hurt and disloyalty, and then finally, persistently keep on trusting the Lord. It, it says there in verse 20, 23, but you know God, you, but you, God, will bring down the wicked 
into the pit of decay, the bloodthirsty and the deceitful will not live out their days. But as for me, I trust you. You got it? When there's an enemy that God has called you to love and it's so difficult to love, just give it over to the Lord. Call out to him, cry out to him, and cast that thing on the Lord. Cast that individual on the Lord so that you don't lose your witness, so you are known by your love. Let's pray together, okay? Father, we just dedicate ourselves to you that we would be known by our love. Our love for even those who are against us, who have, who have risen up to attack us, Lord. Um, Lord, you yourself included uh, Judas in a time of serving and love. Let us include everyone in the love that we would have for this big world out there, Lord. Thank you for this time together. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, how can we show this kind of love? Devin Rice, who works with our benevolent funds and benevolent committee, uh, is going to share with us just a little example of one in our church who showed a special act of love to someone in great need. And this is something we can all see as an act of love, but more importantly, apply it to our own lives and see what we can do for those who are in need. So let's all watch this video together. My name is Devin Rice, and I am the finance director at Three Crosses. A lot of our members don't know this, but Three Crosses has a benevolence fund, which is really just an account to provide financial assistance to individuals and families that are facing hardship. We have a small team that works together to help applicants who are in an immediate crisis. When COVID-19 hit, we had, and still have, a large influx of applicants who lost their jobs. There were people running out of groceries before payday or had issues getting unemployment and couldn't pay their rent. Some people weren't eligible for benefits at all and couldn't pay their utility bills. Each person who reaches out is in a desperate situation. So we try to be here for them not only financially, but also emotionally and spiritually. Sometimes it helps just to be present to let them know they're not alone. So a few months ago, we were connected to a woman who found herself in a similar situation. She has three kids who are schooling from home and was trying to help them with distance learning, as a lot of us who have kids are doing. Not long after, she lost her job and couldn't find money to buy groceries for her family. As we were in the process of providing some funds to tide her over, we learned that the catalytic converter had been stolen from her car. So we talked to a few people in our community to see if anyone knew of a repair shop that might be able to help out. It turned out that one of our regular volunteers is a mechanic. He drove out to Pleasant Hill to pick up this woman's car, called several of his contacts who would be able to help, and even used our benevolence fund to pay for the parts. After that, he took the car home, built and installed a new catalytic converter with an anti-theft device, and returned it back to the woman the next day. Serving others can often be really inconvenient. Sometimes the people we're supposed to help live 25 miles away from us or people we've never even talked to. But if there's something that working with the Benevolence Fund has taught me, it's that our members, you guys, 
are always willing to give your time, energy, and resources to help the people who need it. I really think that's our responsibility as believers, and it's amazing to see God's people rise to the occasion.